Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Morn Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. Problematic Women is going to Texas. <laughs> In two weeks, Lauren and I are traveling to Austin, Texas for the Heritage Foundation's Resource Bank Conference. We're going to be interviewing a number of awesome conservative leaders at the conference, including a few very problematic women. And this is actually going to be uh, my first time visiting Texas, so I'm especially excited about this trip. Lauren and I are going to take the weekend uh, afterwards to drive to Dallas via Waco, Texas. Uh, And so we're super excited just to get out and explore the great and awesome state of Texas a little bit more. So if you're if you're from Austin or Waco or Dallas and you have suggestions of where we should go or what we should do, send us a DM on Instagram or Twitter. Well, Virginia, not only am I so excited about being in Texas, I'm so excited for Resource Bank Heritage puts on such a great conference. We're going to learn so much. We're going to really focus on podcasting. So it's just all around such a fun trip. I'm so excited. We truly have some awesome people we're talking with, and we're so excited to share those interviews with you all on this show. So look forward to that. All right, Lauren, what do we have queued up on today's show? Up on today's Problematic Women, we talk with Alliance Defending Freedom attorney Christina Holcomb and Idaho State University student athlete Mary-Kate Marshall about the fight in Idaho to protect women's sports. Plus, our friend and Heritage Foundation policy analyst Melanie Israel joins us to talk about the U.S. Supreme Court announcement that they will hear arguments for a case that could upend the abortion precedent set by Roe v. Wade. And as always, We'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and encourage others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. I am so pleased to be joined by Alliance Defending Freedom attorney Christiana Holcomb and Idaho State University student athlete Mary Marshall. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you for having us. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, we shared a little bit with our listeners about the situation that's going on in Idaho regarding the Fairness in Women's Sports Act. But Christiana, I want to ask you uh, to take us back back to uh, to last year when Idaho Governor Brad Little signed the Fairness in Women's Sports Act into law. Could you just explain what exactly the purpose of this legislation is? Absolutely. Well, across the country, we're seeing state athletic associations and lawmakers pass policies that allow biological males to come in and to dominate the girls' category. Uh, One prominent example, of course, is what we've seen in Connecticut, and Alliance Defending Freedom is representing female athletes there, but also in the state of Idaho, where Mary-Kate is from. Um, A male athlete from the University of Montana dominated the female category, had previously competed as a male, and in fact, set times that would have absolutely crushed the NCAA women's uh, record in those categories at that time. So Idaho looked at this. Lawmakers said, we don't want to see girls in our state lose out on podium spots and advancement opportunities, championship titles, scholarship opportunities, 
due to males competing in the girls category. So they introduced the Fairness in Women's Sports Act that was later signed by the governor and just shortly thereafter challenged by the ACLU. And why did the ACLU challenge this legislation? Well, the ACLU believes that biological males who identify as female ought to have the right to compete in the girls' category. And that flies in the face of common sense and, frankly, nearly 50 years of um, law and policy in our country where we've set aside the girls' category for a reason. And that's because we recognize there are inherent physical differences that give biological males an inherent athletic advantage over female athletes. In fact, the studies show that males have on average a 10 to 50% performance advantage over comparably fit and trained female athletes. And so if we want a future where girls like Mary Kate can be on the podium and can get the recognition that her hard work deserves, then we have to protect the integrity of women's sports. Absolutely. Mary, this act, as Christiana has explained, it personally affects you. Uh, you are a student at Idaho State University. And I want to get into a little bit about you know, why you signed on to this lawsuit in just a few minutes. But first, uh, I would love to ask you a little bit about your experience running track. What uh, what races do you run? Yeah, my main event is 800, but I also do the 400 and the 1500 and mile indoors. Okay, wow. Those are hard races. <laughs> I uh, I used to run track as well, and I was much more of a short distance runner. I always feel like the 400 was kind of a tease. It's like still sort of a sprint, but not really. <laughs> it's a grueling race. Uh, what What first got you into track? Well, I actually started running in eighth grade. I did track and then into high school, I started doing cross country and track. And that's just when I fell in love with running and knew I wanted to do it in college, too. So what for you is the most rewarding part of running? Definitely just the feeling after I'm done running and just I I like to call it a runner's high. It's just like I feel like I can keep going forever and I just feel so good about myself and just like it gives me so much confidence. Oh, I love that. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the Fairness in Women's Sports Act and, and how it impacts you. As Christiana explained, the act is just intended to protect women's sports and opportunities for women and ensure that only women and girls can actually compete in women's sports. But uh, when the governor signed the law uh, in Idaho, it didn't even have a chance to go into effect before the ACLU challenged it. Uh, Mary, did you ever have to compete? Have you ever had to compete against a biological male in, in a track event? Yeah, actually, my first collegiate cross country race, I competed against a biological male. And going into it, I was already pretty nervous. My first college cross country race um, and this just made me so much more nervous. And after the race, I, I got beat by this athlete, and so did all of my other teammates. And it was just very disheartening to see one of our first races of the season, and already we're having, um, having to run against a biological male. So when you lined up, did you know that you were running against a biological male, or was it not until after the race that you found out? Uh, yeah, we actually found out a couple weeks before our season that we were going to be competing against a biological male. So what was running through your head leading up to that race? You know, I really didn't know what to expect. I just know that you know, males are much faster than females, so how is this going to be fair? But I wanted to like stay open-minded and see what's going to happen because we haven't seen this before. And after the race, I knew this this isn't fair. 
Wow. Wow. Yeah. What were, what were your thoughts following the race? And, um, did, did that individual, uh, take first place? He, the athlete didn't take first place, but this athlete was amongst the top 10, I believe. And it was just very, very discouraging to see this athlete up there and just knowing that whatever, however hard I train probably is not going to do anything because this athlete has so much more, so much more advantages than I do. And I just knew that this was going to be an issue. Yeah. So since that first race, have you had to compete against any other biological men? I competed against a biological male one other time in track and also lost. Okay. Wow. So, Christiana, Alliance Defending Freedom is standing up in defense of Idaho's Fairness in Women's Sports Act. Uh, And earlier this month, Alliance Defending Freedom uh, attorneys argued before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, that the act should be reinstated. Could you just explain what the arguments were that ADF made before those three judges not too long ago? Yes, absolutely. So it's our privilege to represent both Mary Kate and her her colleague Madison Kenyon, two very brave female athletes who wanted to stand up and say no. We want to protect and preserve opportunities for young women in our state. So as you mentioned, we did have oral arguments before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, one of the claims the ACLU is making is that it somehow violates equal protection to have women's sports protected for biological females. And that's simply false. There is nothing in the Constitution that requires states to give special privileges to males who identify as female and want to compete in girls' sports. In fact, it's just the opposite. The Supreme Court has been really clear that it's appropriate for the law to recognize the real physical differences between men and women. The Ninth Circuit has also affirmed that it's constitutional and consistent with federal law to protect the integrity of women's sports. So we are ultimately optimistic that we'll be able to protect Idaho's Fairness in Women's Sports Act and by so doing, ensure that young women across the state of Idaho can compete on a fair and level playing field. That's so critical. We have talked uh, a lot on this show about the case in Connecticut um, that uh, you all were, of course, heavily involved with. Uh, so athletes Selena Soul, Alana Smith, Chelsea Mitchell, and Ashley Nicoletti, uh, along with Alliance Defending Freedom, you all represented those four track athletes in the case Seoul versus Connecticut Association of Schools. And that case sought to prevent biological men uh, from being allowed to compete in women's sports in the state of Connecticut. Well, the judge just recently declared that case moot because the two transgender athletes involved have now graduated. Christiana, what do you think the judge's decision uh, in the situation in Connecticut and declaring that case moot could mean for this case in Idaho? Well, they they both obviously are there and designed to protect the integrity of women's sports. Different legal theories involved. Um, and respectfully, I do think the court in Connecticut got it wrong. Um, young women across the state of Connecticut had lost out on advancement opportunities, 
championship titles, medals, appropriate placements. And there are injuries that uh, had taken place that the court can fix. So again, respectfully, I think the court very much got it wrong, which is why we look forward to appealing that up to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals um, here in the next week or so. Um, but again, Title IX was enacted nearly 50 years ago for the express purpose of stopping discrimination against women and ensuring that female athletes like Mary-Kate have equal athletic opportunities with males. That has not happened when someone with an inherent physical advantage comes in and dominates the female category. So ultimately, we are optimistic that we will be able to restore fairness and a level playing field to women's sports. Kate, I want to ask you, uh, why Why did you decide, you know what, I want to sign on to this lawsuit. You're a college student. Most college students uh, are not taking on, you know, extra work or political activism, but it's great to see that that you're taking a stand. Why, why did you decide to do that? Yeah, this issue is so important, and not just for me and my, my teammates, but for future generations of women is I'm trying to protect women's sports. And it's so important to me. It's been a part of my entire life. And I want that to be how it is for other girls. And especially um, one of my teammates was pushed off the podium by a biological male. And I knew that I should never happen again. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Christiana, you know, we have uh, many times on this show talked about that this issue isn't going away. Uh, we keep seeing it come up and, you know, there's a part of me that wonders, are, are we eventually going to see a case like this rise to the level of the Supreme Court? What are your thoughts on that? I think it's entirely possible. Um, either one of these cases out of Connecticut or Idaho could certainly reach the U.S. Supreme Court, but I hope it doesn't need to get that far. Look, this is really a common sense issue. It, the vast majority of the American people, well over 70 percent, agree that it's not fair to allow males to compete in women's sports. That's, the, again, the whole purpose and promise of Title IX for young women was to protect uh, the integrity of the female category and give girls like Mary-Kate these athletic opportunities. So this is a common sense issue. This should not need to reach the U.S. Supreme Court. And frankly, we hope that the state athletic associations will do the right thing and protect athletic opportunities for female athletes. Do we know when we might get a ruling from the Ninth Circuit on the Idaho case? No, it's entirely at the uh, at the pleasure of the court. So we wait. I expect it could be a couple of months before we receive any sort of written decision. Final words, anything you all would like to add? Uh, I just want to say that, you know, me and my teammates put in 20-hour weeks, and so we work really hard for what we do. And I just want to empower every all women out there just to stand up for women and just know that I'm fighting for you and that I'm not going to stop until we have fair play. So thank you. And I just want to underscore, there are real physical differences between the sexes and it's appropriate for law and policy to recognize that, especially in contexts like sports, where there are these real athletic advantages that males have and we want to preserve and protect the integrity of women's sports so that girls like Mary-Kate can have an athletic future. Yeah. Thank you both. We really, really appreciate you coming on the show and really appreciate your time. Thanks. Thank for you for having us. 
Now stay tuned because up next, friend of the show, Melanie Israel, joins me to talk about the Supreme Court announcing that they're going to hear arguments for a case that could upend the abortion precedent set by Roe v. Wade. But first, I have a question for you all. Do you need a job? If yes, then you need to sign up for the Heritage Foundation Job Bank. The Heritage Job Bank connects conservatives of all career levels to jobs with conservative employers all across the country for free. If you sign up, the Job Bank will send you new job openings every week and invite you to their virtual job fairs and career seminars. The Job Bank team also offers one-on-one career consultation. Sign up is easy. Just go to heritage.org slash job bank and click on register today. I am so excited to welcome back to Problematic Women, our friend, Melanie Israel. Melanie is a policy analyst for the DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation. Melanie, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Always good to be here. Well, on Monday, the U.S. Supreme Court announced that they will hear arguments for a Mississippi case that could upend the uh, abortion precedent set by Roe versus Wade. So, Melanie, to begin, could you just explain this case for us. What is the Mississippi law that is being challenged here that has managed to rise now all the way to the level of the Supreme Court? Sure, sure. And what a a wild ride it's been. Um, the, The case is ultimately about a Mississippi law that passed in 2018 that prohibited um, most abortions, with uh, some very limited exceptions, after 15 weeks of pregnancy, um, and those um, exceptions are in cases of, you know, a, a medical emergency or severe fetal abnormality. Um, and so, of course, that law was immediately challenged because that is a pre-viability um, prohibition on abortion. And interestingly. It took the Supreme Court many, many, many different conferences before they actually decided whether or not they were going to hear the case, which is highly unusual. It it really sat pending before the court for a long time. And so to finally see them agree to hear this case um, is is exciting. And of course, we've seen the pro-abortion side go absolutely apocalyptic. (laughs) Yeah, and I want to talk about that in a minute. Uh, but it, it has been encouraging to see a lot of, uh, of pro-life leaders, people like Jeannie Mancini and, and Lila Rose, who are you know, really speaking out and saying, OK, watch this case. This is this is significant. This is a big deal. Why is it such a big deal? Well, you know, it's really the first case of its kind to go before the Supreme Court that um, could really just kind of present this opportunity to to undermine the the whole thing because of what it's asking about viability. Um, the, The court has never really allowed this to be questioned before. And so to to be able to have a state pass a law like Mississippi's law that bans abortion after 15 weeks and to really have the opportunity to ask the court, okay, is a pre-viability ban constitutional or not? I mean, this is the first time we've really truly been able to hopefully get the court to say one way or the other. Um, It's I believe it was Americans United for Life in their press release. They called it a generational opportunity. This is just absolutely huge. 
So what will change in America if the Supreme Court rules in favor of Mississippi uh, and says, you know, uh, that states really have the right to restrict abortions uh, within their own state law? Yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, the the details will be important of exactly what the court might say. But if they do take this opportunity to, to reconsider Roe versus Wade um, and really, frankly, call it what it is and unwise, um, you know, move from the court where they created a constitutional right to abortion out of nowhere, um, ultimately what that would mean, overturning Roe or undermining Roe, that would return abortion policy where it belongs, to the states. Um, And then Americans in their states would have the opportunity through their elected representatives to decide what their state is going to say. Um, And so, of course, that would mean that some states, like perhaps California, would still be very permissive, but then other states like Mississippi would be able to craft policies through their duly elected members of their state legislature that more accurately reflect what the people in those states actually believe. So I think sometimes we hear this narrative from the far left that, you know, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, abortion will be illegal across America and, you know, women will be back to having, um, you know, abortions with coat hangers in alleys. But uh, it sounds like what you're saying is that narrative is actually very much so incorrect. It's very incorrect. And I think also one of the things that kind of puts this into perspective, um, a a couple interesting, I I guess, facts, if you will, um, is that in Mississippi, they, the the one abortion provider who's bringing this case, um, challenging the law, they only do abortions through 16 weeks of pregnancy. And the Mississippi law has a cutoff of 15 weeks. And so the the real world ramifications of of what this means um, in practice, at least specifically in Mississippi, actually not a whole lot would change. Of, Of course, it's asking the Supreme Court to reconsider the whole issue of viability. Um, that, that's really the big question here. But I think it's also worth pointing out the vast majority of countries in the world limit abortion after the first trimester. Um, you know, for, for all of pointing to perhaps our um, you know, European counterparts and people on the left wanting to, to mimic, for example, European-style healthcare and, and other policies, they don't seem to want to mimic European-style abortion policies because in most places, elective abortion after the first trimester is just simply not done. I, I, I think one of the facts I had seen was 75% of the world doesn't allow elective abortion after the first trimester. And the United States is one of only seven countries that allows elective abortion for any reason whatsoever after 20 weeks gestation. And so putting all of that in context, realizing how extreme U.S. abortion policy is compared to the rest of the world, it it really just throws cold water on all of these claims from the left that, um, you know, there's going to be all of these problems because it would actually simply bring us closer in line with where the rest of the world already is and has been for many years. Hmm, that's really, really interesting. So what what are some of these other arguments that we're hearing from the far left since uh, since Monday when the Supreme Court announced that they're going to take up this case? 
you know, one of the things that was um, very, very um, disturbing to see, frankly, is the way that the district court judge who had initially struck down this Mississippi law um, characterized what Mississippi was trying to do. Um, In that opinion from the district court judge, he essentially took Mississippi lawmakers to to task, um, berated them for things like not expanding Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, um, criticized, you know, a history of injustices in Mississippi, um, hearkening the the era of slavery and and Jim Crow, and essentially was equating a pro-life law with all of these other historical injustices. And I've seen some of that playing out again, um, uh, an anchor on CNN, um, you know, basically saying that the the pro-life position is one that's rooted in racism. And, you know, what what an absolutely offensive characterization. The, the pro-life position is one that believes that every human person from day one, regardless of their, their sex, their ability, anything, that every human person has inherent dignity and worth. And to compare the pro-life position to racism, to sexism, to, to all of these other societal ills is, is frankly offensive, but it's certainly not new from the left. They they do the same thing with um, with respect to the Hyde Amendment, which is mm. what prohibits taxpayer funding from paying for most abortions in the United States. The the current playbook is to call pro life policies racist, and um, it's of course deeply offensive. And I think you're going to see a lot of folks in the pro life movement aggressively pushing back on that offensive rhetoric. Well, I think it especially seems hypocritical when Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, uh, you know, was very, very openly racist uh, and spoke about, you know, abortion as, uh, you know, eugenics. And um, so it it is really uh, discouraging and disheartening to see see the left pushing a narrative that is just false. Um, and what what do we know about Americans view right now? of abortion and has that opinion of abortion in America shifted over the years as science has advanced and we've learned more uh, about a baby in the womb and that developmental cycle? You know, it's such an important question because truly ultrasound technology has been a game changer. And that technology, um, you know, came not too long after the Roe versus Wade decision came down. I mean, it, it really makes you think, what if, what if Roe v. Wade had happened 10 years later, for example, um, would, would that policy have been able to be so extreme? Um, and, you know, it, it, it's a what if that we're not ever going to know the answer to, but everybody now, especially in our generation, has grown up being able to see a, a picture of either our, our siblings or our own children from, from the very earliest days of their existence. And everybody knows exactly what it is that they're looking at in those ultrasound pictures. And when you look at public polling, I, I know that the left likes to say that people broadly support Roe v. Wade. But I think that's a little bit misleading to say, because I think a lot of people don't fully understand what Roe v. Wade says, how extreme Roe v. Wade is, and frankly, how extreme U.S. abortion policy is compared to the rest of the world, and what would happen in the absence of Roe. A better question 
is asking Americans what they think about abortion specifically. And there, it's very clear, and it's been very clear for a long time, our national consensus is that abortion should be significantly restricted, particularly after the first trimester. And that's regardless of your you know, political party or ideology. And so rather than asking specific questions about whether or not people support Roe v. Wade, yes or no, I think a better indicator is to look at what people actually think about abortion policy, because most people think abortion should be significantly limited. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Melanie, uh, what do you think we're going to see as as we move forward? Uh, you know, it's going to be a while before these arguments are brought before the Supreme Court and then before the Supreme Court makes a ruling on the case. Um, so uh, what do you think we'll see from from the media and, you know, the abortion lobby and uh, as as this case kind of continues to um, be litigated and pop up in the news. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, um, you know, of course, we, we won't actually get to have the oral arguments until sometime in the fall. And then, of course, um, historically speaking, a, a lot of these kind of hot button social issue, you know, abortion, religious liberty related cases, a lot of those seem to typically come down at the very, very end um, of the court's term in the summer. And so, you know, we're potentially still over a year away from finding out one way or the other what the Supreme Court is going to do. And so that's a, a long time for people on both sides of this issue to to really, um, you know, prepare and and make their arguments. And I think we're going to see a lot more of the same coming from the left, just the absolutely, um, you know, apocalyptic rhetoric, all of the different claims of racism and, and sexism, you know, anything that they can to try to disparage the, the pro-life cause. But on the other side of things, within the pro-life movement, I think we're going to see a lot of pushback against those, um, you know, frankly, offensive smears that we're seeing. And I also think we're going to see a lot more um, discussed about the resources that are available to women who are experiencing, um, you know, an unplanned or a difficult pregnancy. This really provides us an opportunity to talk about what the pro-life movement solutions are and really, um, you know, present to the American people who may not have really been thinking about this until it became um, such a big issue in the media. This is an opportunity to really show what the face of the pro-life movement is. And that is a movement that is, um, you know, built on hope and love and the inherent dignity of every person and what that really means um, to, to support women and babies who need help. Yeah, this is such a critical time for the pro-life movement. Melanie, we so appreciate your time and uh, you coming on the show today just to break this case down for us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Virginia Allen here. I want to tell you all about a great way you can stay in the know on all the news The Daily Signal covers. Social media. The Daily Signal has an active presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are constantly posting news stories, clips from interviews, videos, and more across all our social platforms. Follow The Daily Signal on social media so you can get all the latest content from reels on Instagram to video clips on Facebook and political commentary on Twitter. 
Now it is that time, once again, one of my favorite times, time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. And the crown goes to... Idaho track athlete Mary-Kate Marshall. A huge thank you to Mary-Kate Marshall for joining the show today and for standing up for every woman and girl's right to compete on an equal playing field. I personally just so admire Mary-Kate for being willing to sign onto this Idaho lawsuit. You know, that's not an easy thing to do as a college student to decide that you're going to put yourself in the public spotlight and risk a lot of people being really upset with you. I mean, while this shouldn't be a controversial issue, it it is one, and Mary-Kate is incredibly courageous to be standing up for the truth in this situation and fighting for all women and girls to have that right to compete on an equal playing field. Yeah, no, I, I, I sometimes I get nervous just putting out a controversial tweet. So I can't imagine <laughs> putting your face and your name behind this issue. So she is definitely very worthy of our Problematic Woman of the Week. She definitely is. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world. And we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. And don't forget to shoot us a DM if you have suggestions for places that Lauren and I should visit in Texas. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.